following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. This week, we are beginning a new message series here at Wellsprings called Songs of the Soul, where we take a look at some of the songs that we sing Sunday after Sunday here at Wellsprings and dig a little bit deeper into the meaning behind these songs, into some of the messages that they might have to carry for us. And I'm really glad that I get to start this message series. I got first pick of my song. Because I'm starting with a song that I really do love from a genre of music that I also actually love, believe it or not. Christian rock. Yeah. Christian rock. I am so uncool for loving Christian rock as much as I do. And... For a long time, I have to say, I thought I might be the only Unitarian Universalist Christian rock fan in the world. But then I actually went away to divinity school, and uh, I met these goofballs up here. These three guys are three of my friends from the time that I was up in Boston. My friend Matt and my friend Eric with the big funny beard in the middle, and my friend uh, Dave in the back there. This is us in a recording studio uh, when we spent some time together recording because the three of us had this shared love of Christian rock, and we decided to create a worship band. Uh, We got together and performed uh, for a couple different UU churches in the Boston area for a few different events. We recorded a couple songs. And I have to tell you, we almost became this close to having the best band name ever for our band. And the band name, it came from this story that one of our friends told us. This was a friend who, when he came to Divinity School, he was coming from a Christian background. He actually never heard of Unitarian Universalist before. He didn't know anything about it. And so the first time he ever heard Unitarian, he thought, okay, well, Christians worship Christ. So I guess Unitarians must worship some kind of God named Unitar. (laughs) That's cool. That works. So we almost called our band Unitar. It was going to be awesome. But then my friend Matt didn't like the name, so we didn't go with that. And so our little band did cover a lot of songs that were a lot like the song that I'm talking about today, a lot like Warn, which is a song by a Christian rock band called 10th Avenue North. This is what they look like, marginally cooler than my friends and I. It is a song from the Christian rock genre, but... It's not a song that's only for people who have a particular kind of belief. It's not a song for a specific kind of religious person or a person who goes along with some kind of doctrine. To me, songs like Warn are really songs that are pointing to a deeper, shared experience of life. It's a song that's about something that we all probably have some kind of memory of or access to. It's a song about the experience of being worn the hell out right? By something very challenging. It's a song about the experience of suffering at a deep and visceral kind of level. And it's also a song about the desire and the need from that place to cry out for some kind of end to our pain. Now, I chose Warren to preach about this morning, but Warren also chose me a little bit. Some of you might know that During the first few weeks of my internship, of my time here as the ministerial intern at Wellsprings, back in late August and early September, I uh, 
wasn't always the kind of happy-go-lucky, chipper self that most of you know. When I first started my internship, in those first couple weeks, I didn't have any responsibilities on Sunday morning. I got to just sit out there with you and get to know the community. And I usually sat back in that kind of left corner by the door, and I cried. Especially when songs like Warned came on. Especially when Warned came on. Have any of you ever cried at a Wellspring song during the service? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. (laughs) Teresa's raising her hand. (laughs) I knew it wasn't just me, and now you know it's not just you either. You see, the week I began my internship was actually the very same week that my relationship with my partner, my boyfriend of five years, ended. I'm only 30, remember. Five years was a long time. It was quite a roller coaster of emotions for me to be here, to be new to this community, and also to be experiencing probably the most significant loss of my adult life. And so, those first few weeks, spent a lot of Sundays crying in the back row, especially during Warren. Now, there's an old saying, a piece of advice that ministers give to each other. It says, preach from your scars, not your wounds. And I confess that I thought long and hard about that piece of advice as I prepared to preach this morning. But this is a scar for me now. There is new pink tender skin covering this wound, but it's there. Now, when I arrived in September, it was a gaping open wound. There was no new skin. And the guys who wrote Warn knew exactly how I was feeling back then. I'm tired, I'm worn, my heart is heavy from the work it takes just to keep on breathing. I know I'm not the only person here this morning who's ever felt that way. Now, wounds show up in our lives in a lot of different ways. But wounds often show up around experiences of loss or grief. Experiences of profound sadness or trauma in our lives that changes everything. That takes away something that we counted on or something that we loved. When grief or loss happens, it is like a wound. It takes us out of commission for a while. We need some time to let the wound kind of do its own wound thing. To bleed But we also eventually come to realize, just like the singer in Warren, that we can't live here forever. We have to keep moving forward somehow. And there are lots of theories out there about what moving forward looks like. Lots of different theories about grief, different stages of grief. You might have heard of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's a psychologist who has probably one of the most well-known theories about how we process and move through and work with different stages of grief in our lives. There are different customs and rituals that people from different religions and cultural backgrounds use to experience their grief. 
there are even different theories, actually, about kind of griever identities, sort of like a Myers-Briggs or a Buzz, BuzzFeed personality quiz, right? Which kind of griever are you? Um, and suggest that if you're this kind of griever, you grieve in this way. And as we dig into what this song, Worn, is really all about, I want to talk a little bit about one of these theories that maybe is coming from a source you don't know quite as much about or haven't heard from before. And it's a theory on grief that was developed by this man on the right. This is Pastor Rick Warren. He's the founder and the senior minister of the Saddleback Church in California, one of the largest evangelical megachurches in the country. Somebody kind of at the pinnacle of the ministry world, depending on how you define it, but certainly has a big church, a lot of success, and a lot of influence. I've read a lot of Rick Warren's books, and he and I disagree on some things, and we agree on some things. But recently he put out a message series of his own online that's all about grief and loss. And what prompted this message series has to do with the other man in this picture. That's Rick Warren's son, Matthew Warren. Matthew took his own life last April after a 27-year struggle with mental illness and severe depression. And so out of this experience of Rick Warren's own profound grief and loss over losing a child, and also out of the experiences of his ministry of working and talking and counseling and praying with people who had losses and grieves in their own lives, Rick Warren developed a slightly different way of understanding these sort of stages of grief and loss. He came up with six different stages, and I'm not going to go through all of them. The first two especially are probably ones that sound familiar to you if you have read anything about this before. Shock and sorrow. Shock and sorrow are the unavoidable present moment of grief. They're the kind of reactions that happen when you first learn of a tragedy or a trauma or a loss in your life, and kind of all you can handle is where you are right now. You know, that pile of tissues next to you, maybe sleeping, maybe eating, right? It's just kind of drawing you into the present moment and getting you through the day. The third stage that Rick Warren talks about is where we start to move out of that present moment. It's sort of a transitional stage that he calls struggle. And in struggle, we get a little bit more into our heads, right? Maybe into our thoughts and reasoning and questions. Why? Why is this happening? Why is it happening to me? If you have heard about any of these other theories of grief, it's a lot like the bargaining phase you might be familiar with, because that's kind of what's underneath those questions, right? We think that maybe if we can figure out why, then we can stop it. If we can figure out why, then we can put an end to our struggle, to the pain and the loss that we're going through. And this is exactly where we meet the singer in Warren. He is struggling. He is wondering why this is happening to him, and he is crying out for the end, for the end to his pain. He's crying out for mercy. I know that you can give me rest, so I cry out with all that I have left. Let me see redemption win, please. Let me know the struggle ends. 
The struggle phase is a tough one. Inspires music. And Rick Warren says that the end of this struggle comes with the arrival of just what the singer is asking for. With the arrival of mercy. He calls it surrender. That's his fourth stage. After shock and sorrow and struggle, there is surrender. Now, surrender doesn't mean that what happened was okay. It doesn't mean that what happened was deserved or just or fair. Surrender simply means that instead of asking, why is this happening? We start to say, this is happening. This is happening to me. It's actually a chance to pause. And maybe for the first time in this process to get a little bit, a little bit of peace. Where we can come back to the present and say, this is real. It's a really good way station, a good middle step, because it really helps prepare the way for what comes next. I live in Philadelphia, in the city. And one of the things that I love about living in Philadelphia is that I get to see a lot of public art. It's a ton of public art in the city of Philadelphia. And some of that has little plaques by it and is by renowned, well-known artists. And some of it, some people might call graffiti. I call it public art. This is an example of something that a friend of mine actually saw just this week uh, on a building at the corner of Broad and Sansom. And he snapped a picture of it and put it on Facebook. It's graffiti that says, scabs are mercy. New skin is grace. Scabs are mercy. And new skin is grace. When we surrender, when we can say this is happening, we get a scab. And it still sucks, right? (laughs) It still sucks that we got hurt in the first place. Even when we surrender, even when that mercy comes. But I don't know about you. I'll take the scab over no scab. The scab is mercy. And with a scab over a wound, what starts to happen? With a scab over a wound, we're protected. We're covered at the surface. We're not bleeding anymore. And with a scab covering our wound, there's a whole lot of other work that can now begin below the surface. The fifth stage that Rick Warren talks about is something that he calls sanctification. Now, even he cops to the fact that that's a big Bible word, (laughs) sanctification. What it means, really, is that in this stage, things start working and changing inside of us. Warren says, I'm not the same person I was before my son's death. I know that I'm not the same person I was before my relationship ended. I'm different. Something has changed. Something has worked and changed inside of me. This can be a really hard stage to work through because we often don't want to think of the changes that are brought about by a loss or a trauma in our lives as gifts. It's kind of counterintuitive sometimes, right? If we think of the changes brought about by the loss 
as a gift, then it almost makes it seem like it was good for the thing to happen. And it wasn't good for the thing to happen. And yet we do receive gifts. We become more fully ourselves. We become more fully the gift of who we are because of all of our experiences. That's the thing about scars. It's different from wounds. We can show each other our scars. You ever seen kids on the playground? Showing each other all their little scars, all their little cuts and bruises. I really only have two scars on my physical self. I have a great big ugly chicken pox scar in the middle of my back. I have a busted finger. You probably can't see it from here, but I'll show you later if you want. My index finger on my right hand, I broke it during a rugby game in college. And being too young and stupid, I never really got it set properly. So it's all bent and swollen. This is a bit of a spoiler for Easter next week now. So if you don't know the end of the Easter story, you know, put your earmuffs on now. But in the story of the Gospels, in the resurrection story, Jesus rises from the tomb, still bearing his scars. Now, if you buy the premise of the whole resurrection story, Jesus could have done whatever he wanted, right? He could have come back as a unicorn if he felt like it. He chooses to rise from the tomb, to come back from the dead, still bearing his scars. And he shows them to his disciples. That carries incredible meaning for them. There's so much power in that story for us to see this triumph and vulnerability all mixed up into one. When we think about a lot of the folks that we look up to as great inspirations, they're often people who bear their scars. A couple weeks ago, Reverend Ken talked about Jason Isbell, one of his favorite musicians, whose songs are all about this struggle, his personal struggle with addiction and recovery, and how that has been a source of inspiration for so many people. We're talking heavy hitters on the inspiration front here. Think about Oprah, right? A lot of people are incredibly inspired by Oprah, her work, and yet she is a person who's very, very open about the pain and struggle and the intense trauma in her past. There are people in this congregation I know that there are people in this room who are inspirations to other people in this room because they are open and honest about their struggles with being completely worn out and also open about how they've been changed. We crave this. We all want to know that a song can rise from the ashes of a broken life. In one way or another, we're all a little bit broken. When people bear their scars, it shows us that we can get through. The scabs are the mercy. But the new skin, that's grace. The last stage 
that Rick Warren talks about, he calls service. And, you know, he's really spot on with this. He says, you know, churches especially will often talk about the gifts that people can bring. They'll talk about the gifts of time and talent and treasure that you can bring to your church. We do this here at Wellsprings, too, that phrase, time, talent, and treasure. He says, we don't talk enough about giving our trouble, about bearing those scars and sharing our trouble with one another and how that can also be a gift. And so I want to talk a little bit as I close out this message about a woman who shared her trouble with incredible, life-changing results. It's this woman right here. Her name is Antoinette Tuff. And if you were paying attention to the news towards the end of last year, it was kind of an old news story, but you might have heard her name before. Antoinette Tuff was a bookkeeping clerk at an elementary school in Decatur, Georgia. And the reason we know her name is because one morning at that elementary school, a 20-year-old man named Michael Hill showed up dressed all in black and armed with an AK-47. Now, Antoinette Tuff was a bookkeeping clerk. She's not a teacher. She's not an administrator. She's not a counselor. She just happened to find herself in the front office when Michael Hill walked in with a gun. And if you've heard about this case, you know what happened. There was lots of attention all over the media about this incident because the remarkable thing was that no one ended up being hurt. Michael Hill put down his gun. He surrendered peacefully to the police after a 25-minute-long conversation. He called a standoff. It was both. A standoff and a conversation with Antoinette Tuff. And in the media, she was praised for keeping a cool head, for her compassion that she showed throughout the encounter, for her quick thinking. She essentially talked him out of his plans. And the quote that was all over the news, the quote from Antoinette Tuff, was a quote that she said actually immediately after his surrender, right after he'd put the gun down. She said, I just want you to know that I love you, though, okay? And I'm proud of you. It's a good thing that you're giving up, and don't worry about it. We all go through something in life. It's an amazing quote. The level of compassion that is required to say I love you to someone who nearly murdered potentially dozens, hundreds of people. But I want to tell you about some of the things that she said before that moment, before he put the gun down. I want to read to you what she said. She told him about how her husband had left her after 22 years. She told him about how she was raising a son with special needs all on her own and how hard that had been to adjust to. At one point, he mentions suicide. He mentions that he doesn't want to live anymore, and she says, no, you don't want that. You're going to be okay. I thought the same thing. You know, I tried to commit suicide last year after my husband left me, but look at me now. Still working, and everything's okay. 
out of the ashes of her broken life, after the worn down and worn out struggle that she'd been through of her own despair, what a literal and tangible gift of life that Antoinette Tuff was able to bring to literally hundreds of people, to Michael Hill, to the teachers and the staff in that school, to the children in that building. The love that she was able to show came out of the ashes of her broken life. It makes me wonder now, what about Michael Hill? Now that his life has been saved, I wonder what gift even he might bring to someone else down the road. We really may not know in the moment how sharing the gift of our trouble, how bearing our scars might serve as an inspiration, an immeasurably real and meaningful gift to someone else. And so if you have some new skin, you have some pink and tender places, some scars, all I want to do is ask you to sit with that. Think about it. And if you're here this morning, worn out, still bleeding, still crying out for the scab of mercy, please don't worry about the scars yet. But please do keep crying out. Keep asking how a song can rise from the ashes of a broken life. I bet eventually somebody might sing you a song. Amen. May you live in blessing. Pray together. Holy Spirit, God of our hearts, God of everything that we are, help us to remember that we are whole and we are holy, even when we may feel the opposite. Help us to stay connected to that source, that source that we experience in the breath, that source that we experience in the present moment. It reminds us that we are here and we are whole, just as we are. And help us to remind one another, when one of us is forgotten, that we are all here together and we can share our lives with one another. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.